thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. I'm glad to have you with me today for this new episode of God, Law, and Liberty as we consider the question of escaping futility. How do we build our lives, whether we're building uh, our personal lives, building the lives of our children, building the life of our church, building our lives as citizens of a government in which we make the laws under which we will live? How do we build rightly? How do we, how do we live in such a way that what we do here is not lost on that final day of judgment, that it was not like just digging holes and putting dirt back in and digging them up again. It was fruitless. It was pointless. How do we live meaningfully in an enduring way looking towards eternity? I'm I'm really looking forward to the things we're going to be covering over over the next several weeks, things that, to be honest, I was never exposed to growing up in evangelical, conservative, Bible-believing churches. And today, we're going to take a sobering follow-up look at what was discussed last week, which was essentially, do Christians really have a scripturally-based worldview that encompasses the whole of reality? Uh, We noted last week, as we looked at some excerpts from Albert Walter's book, Creation Regained, that we really look at the scriptures today to have a theology view, a church view, a pietistic view of the world, but we don't have a view of the whole world. In other words, our view of scripture is limited. It's not cosmic in its scope. We see scripture is limited to those few things, but not everything whether it's science, arts, media, government, law, Supreme Court decisions. And one of the things that I said last week, quoting from Al Walters, is that there is a powerful inclination to appropriate many of our beliefs, even basic ones, from a culture that has been secularizing at an accelerating rate for generations. So today what I want us to look at before we, we go any further is to again assemble the ground on which we are working. If you're going to be the sons of Issachar, if you're going to know what to do, you have to know the milieu, the environment, the the circumstances in which you're going to be building. And to not understand them will, as I've said before, create a leaning tower of Pisa, where the foundations were not rightly laid, and over time things began to go askew. So how did our view of Scripture go from embracing the whole of the cosmos, every sphere and area of life, down to a view of matters of the church or ecclesiology, matters of just strictly God or personal piety? How did that come about? And I want to take some excerpts today from a book by Nancy Piercy called Total Truth. I recommend the book to you highly to help us understand the transitions that begin to take place in America. Now, many, particularly Christians, will recall the first and second great awakenings. And the first great awakening really took off in Massachusetts through 
the preaching and the work of Jonathan Edwards. And then there was a second Great Awakening that took place in a different period of time. And perhaps the best way to distinguish them and to perhaps even understand the nature of them is to remember the first Great Awakening took place prior to the American Revolution. It was the awakening that led to the revolution, to the understanding of the fundamental nature of rights coming from God, that we were losing those, that the English Empire or, or the Parliament and the King were not respecting those inalienable sort of rights, and so, well, we declared our independence to recover them or to regain them or to preserve them, however you want to look at it. But the second great awakening came afterwards, and it was a completely different kind of awakening. And I will submit to you that you will see over the next few minutes how our understanding of Scripture and of even Christianity and being a Christian changed in the 1800s. And we're going to look at the end of today's broadcast at one of the great consequences of that change that has led to the loss of any influence in our culture, the disrespect that is now shown towards Christianity. We have, in essence, brought upon ourselves what I believe is taking place as a measure of discipline for the church. And if we'll understand that, then we'll know what we need to repent of, which is more than the sin of abortion or the sin of gay marriage. Those are, those are symptoms and fruits of much deeper issues and problems within evangelicalism, Protestantism today. And we're going to begin to look at that today. And we're going to look at it next week to see what, what shaped these things I'm going to be talking about today so that, again, we have a full understanding of how we got to the place where we use Scripture for, for matters of personal ethics and perhaps running the church, but leave them out when it comes to politics and law and government. If you remember last week, I mentioned a little monograph I had written that was called Toward Christian Nihilism, a short study in two contrasting policy positions. And let me encourage you get that because you will see the contrast between how in one instance in front of the General Assembly this past session a, a biblically informed view of law and government was made in connection with marriage and a different view devoid of any of those biblical categories and considerations and framing of arguments was made to prevent males who think they're females from competing against biological females in college sports. It's, it's a, I think, a very helpful short study in seeing how we can pursue ends that may look right, but pursue them in a wrong way, divorced from Scripture. And when we divorce our view of the world from Scripture, we will go wrong. It will bring about death. Death to individuals who forsake the Scripture, death to institutions and cultures that forsake God and His Word. So let's take a look at this, if we could, for a few moments now today. Historian Gordon Woods has described the Second Great Awakening as the democratization of truth. And it said that the concepts of unalienable rights were transferred from the political realm to the realm of ideas and ultimately into Christianity. Everything was left to the individual, the voter, the buyer, the religious believer, to make decisions 
strictly on their own. Now, we, we saw that actually in the Dobbs decision that we've talked about in previous episodes where the Supreme Court said, wow, abortion is a profound moral question. Who are we to know anything about it? Let's just turn it over to the voters of 50 states and let the voters of 50 states all decide whether there is anything really true about what it means to be human and to be a person. You see that democratization idea playing out, whereas the church of the past would have said, of course there are things that are true and everyone can know them. And for you to do justice, Supreme Court, you must know them and acknowledge them. You don't get to vote on those kinds of things. They are what they are. You simply acknowledge them and bow down to them because they are realities created by God to whom all are subject. But what began to happen in the 1800s, particularly in the middle to late 1800s, was the democratization of truth carried into the church from the political world, doing exactly what Walter said. We began to absorb the culture rather than influence the culture. Now I'm going to mention a few names here historically to give evidence of this that come from Miss Percy's book. And, and I don't mention their names to denigrate any particular denominations or faith traditions. They just are historically what they are. And I'll give you the quotes and you'll see what I'm talking about. But one of the persons who played a leading role in the development of Methodism in the United States was Lorenzo Dow. And Lorenzo Dow often brought his political views into the pulpit, even sometimes quoting Thomas Paine in uh, his sermons. He wrote a pamphlet that was actually entitled The Rights of Man, a religious pamphlet. Now, if there was ever anything enlightenment sounding, the rights of man would be it. And in that pamphlet, he wrote, quote, if all men are born equal and endowed with unalienable rights by their creator, then there can be no just reason why he may or should not think and judge and act for himself in matters of religion. Now that sounds great and we might want to embrace it and we might want to say, well, that's part of the freedom of conscience that Paul talks about. But the scripture also talks about that God has appointed to his church for the upbuilding of the church, for the bringing of the church to maturity, pastors and preachers and so on and so forth. So, so in other words, while it is true that that with, with Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was, was shed abroad in a new and different way, not, not limited by Jewish ethnicity, that God didn't just speak through particular prophets, that, that we all came to, in a sense, know God because of the revelation of God in Jesus Christ and the understanding of the, of the indwelling of God in the form of the Holy Spirit, who is one with the Father and the Son. We, we, we say... Yes, that, part of that is true, but it's not the whole of the truth. He wouldn't have said he's given to his church people to carry out teaching functions if it wasn't necessary for us to be instructed by those who have studied more than perhaps we have. You're not going to become a very mature Christian with a fully informed conscience by reading little devotional pamphlets in the morning, saying a quick prayer, and rushing off to work. It ain't going to happen. But because we've loosed this notion of the democratization in the church, well, I have as much right to decide the things of God, reading my little devotional pamphlet in the morning, as, as the person who, who has learned the original Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew and studied history and the history of the church and all those kinds of things. What could he know that I don't know from reading my little pamphlet this morning? And, and so there began to be this, this sort of 
a diminution of the importance of history and of learning and of engaging with the church in a sense of continuity. Remember last week I mentioned that if, if we're not careful, we will not see the mystery that's being revealed in the Old and New Testament that was the mystery from before creation. Remember the citing of that verse? There's something that's been going on since before there was creation, and, and God was disclosing it over time as we matured, you might say. And, and so perhaps sometimes we should look at the Old Testament as saying what God was doing in all these symbols and rituals and so on and so forth was what we do with a child with pop-up books. You know, I've, I've just had some grandchildren and they have little things that pop up and they learn, oh, when that pops up, that's a man or a cat or a dog. Or they put different textures on it so you can begin to feel them and, and the colors that they use. And you begin to associate the duck with yellow, for example, and whatever else it might be. God was saying, I'm bringing you to maturity. Remember, that's what he says in, in Ephesians. We want you to rise to the full measure of the maturity of Jesus Christ. And I've been training you, training you, training you, training you, and finally I've given you the full revelation, the full mystery. It's now been revealed in the work of Christ, showing us how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost have been involved from the beginning even to now in revealing to you the mystery of God and the mystery of godliness. Well, we've taken on this egalitarian kind of notion. I don't need no teachers. I can know as much as the next guy. Well, that's not necessarily true. Another key person was John Leland. He was one of the very popular, although controversial, Baptists in the early 19th century. Speaking of religion, he said, we will be free. We will rule ourselves. Now that's great if we're talking about civil liberty and we're going to make the laws under which we will live, but, but free of God, free of his law, free to decide what his law is apart from God's revelation and his word, well, let's be a little careful there, okay? He, he went on and wrote, is not the simple man who makes nature and reason his study a competent judge of things? I mean, that almost leads to the notion that, that the simple and ignorant, Nancy Piercy says, are actually more competent than the learned clergy to read and understand the Bible. I, I mean, that's sort of what faith became. It became this notion that I leave my intellect behind because every man's free to judge the scripture. No one needs more education than the other person. Now we don't do that in any other field. We don't say the more ignorant you are of science, the better off you are as a doctor, but we apply that, that concept sometimes to the church. That, that I don't have to really study and think. I can, I can know God. It becomes a form of Gnosticism and mysticism really. And it's kind of where actually some of the concept of soul competency in the Baptist church came from. And I grew up there, not trying to damn the Baptist church. I'm just reciting what, what some of the pastors within these different denominations proposed and taught and said and where ideas developed. The disciples of Christ, churches of Christ, the Christian churches, okay? So one of their leaders was Elias Smith. And, and in one of his pamphlets, he wrote, many are Republicans as to government and yet are but half Republicans, being in matters of religion still bound to a catechism, creed, covenant, or a superstitious priest. We should venture to be as independent in things of religion as those with respect to the government in which you live. 
Do you see how we're bringing into the concept of the church in Christianity, into the reading of the Bible, the concepts taking place in culture and politics, not taking the thoughts of, of the scripture and the word to influence the culture. The culture is more shaping the way we're thinking of Christ and the church and scripture than the other way around. Now, you might see where this would lead in, in a few decades, towards the end of the 1800s, to Abraham Kuyper saying to the seminarians in, at Princeton, Protestantism wanders around aimlessly in the wilderness, going hither and thither and making no progress. Well, we were, we were too disjointed and disconnected to really make any progress. I disagree with the preacher. I just leave and start my own church. I don't, I don't try to work to understand. I don't, I, don't, I don't search the scriptures as perhaps I ought. I've got the right to judge them, and I disagree with that, so I'm going to go somewhere else where I can find the person who will agree with me. The democratization of the church and truth. In fact, Elias went ahead and said that the rejection of creeds and confessions was, quote, perfectly analogous to the Revolutionary War between Britain and America. You see the intertwining of politics and our view of Scripture and the church and the long history of the church. Now I'm going to just inject something here. One of the things that happens with Gnosticism is Gnostics tend to divorce themselves from history. Gnosticism is an escape from history. It's an escape from the world. And do you not see that tendency within many in evangelicalism just waiting to escape the world and flee from history? I'll fly away in the sweet by and by. Our songs even reflect what, what I'm talking about. Well, I also mentioned last week that, that we begin to separate the heart and the head. We s separate the objective in our theology, the objective work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit from our subjective experience of those things. And if we're not careful, we become emotive, subjective-oriented feeling in our theology. Now that goes back to a guy named Schlarmacher that was back before that, but I'm not going to go there today. But what began to happen was that in essence you had to have this conversion experience. and, and and revivals began to pop up that offered, as Nancy Piercy said, the assurance of salvation on the spot. The individual made a decision and he was saved instantly. Okay? Now, I'm going to continue in this vein because, look, I've been lots, part of lots of revivals, led music in revivals. My parents were the special musicians for revivals. During the summer, I was in revivals three and four weeks out of the year because dad was leading the choir and mom was doing the solos and they were doing duets so and and there's nothing wrong with having a revival nothing wrong with 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 the idea of saying we're gonna make a concerted concentrated effort to bring the gospel to people nothing wrong with that don't hear me saying that. but we began to change the way we spoke about the gospel now Nancy Piercy talks about this Jonathan Edwards for example with respect to the first great awakening said that it was a, quote, surprising work of God. And that's what I said last week. The, the heart has to be restored. It has to be converted. Its affections have to be changed and renewed and, and released from the bondage of sin. And that is a work of God. I can't change my heart by matter of sheer will. 
That's the whole point of the Reformation and, and Luther's bondage of the will and Calvin and the Reformation and all that began to take place from then on in the 1500s to the 1700s and even with Jonathan Edwards who stood in their vein and said this was a work of God but there was a figure now well, I'm going to step on some toes here but Nancy Piercy puts it out and it's true you can look it up you can read it and I have because it's so flabbergasted as to what I did not know but one of the leaders of the revivalist movement and again I'm not speaking against concerted efforts to reach out to people to introduce them to the gospel but this was Charles Finney he was a lawyer who turned into an evangelist and, and he brought a very lawyery step-by-step -step, rationalist kind of approach to revivals okay and, and this is what he said and I'm quoting you can find it. a revival is not a miracle in other words contrary to what Jonathan Edwards says it's not a work of God he continued on quote the result of the right use of the appropriate means that's what brings revival you might want to read an interesting book called the anxious bench one of the revivalist methodologies was to call people to sin and repentance and tell them to come down front and put them on the spot it was known as the anxious bench Finney went on to say quote religion is a work of man I'll just leave you to decide whether that sounds scriptural and biblical and when he was confronted like with this booklet that I've read the anxious bench his response was the results justify my methods well Piercy goes on to say the natural outcome of this mechanical mentality both then and now is a tendency to measure success by numbers and impact instead of by the ministers personal virtue and faithfulness in proclaiming the gospel well there's the seeker friendly church isn't it let's see how many people we can get in the building and then let's let's turn on the smoke machines and the music and the, all kinds of other things and let's uh, use the appropriate means to generate decisions and then we can count those decisions and say we've succeeded even if the persons fall away from the church at some point or they just stay like newborn babes nothing longing for nothing other than the milk of the word repeating the same doctrines over and over and over and never moving on to maturity that's okay we were able to count them in fact not too long ago I was talking to a person I know I'm sure he's a believer but he was in charge of the uh, what would I say the the sound and the lighting and all that in, in this modern church it looks like a warehouse and I said wow this is really quite a setup and he said yeah we we want to create these were his words create an atmosphere where people can experience God you see we're gonna we're gonna manufacture an emotional thing here so that people can feel and subjectively emotively that I've had an experience with God they may not know God from from the pew they're sitting in or the chair they're sitting in but they feel like they do the problem is the feelings wear off on Monday or certainly by Thursday or Friday or Saturday right and, and I need to come back and get some more Jesus juice or Holy Spirit juice or something else because my emotions have sort of worn off and I'm I can't feel what I'm feeling and I don't have anything objective 
it's true that in my mind I can say despite what I feel I know this to be true and I will I will ask God to bring my feelings into alignment with what I know now here was the danger of this and it began to show up Nancy Piercy writes this as America moved beyond being a nation of settlers and farmers and small towns a religion of the heart was not enough to respond to the intellectual challenges emerging in the 19th century, especially Darwinism and higher criticism. Later evangelists like Dwight L. Moody and Billy Sunday tried to counter the new ideas with sheer revivalistic fervor. And she said, but the fervor sometimes began to take on a brittle defensive sort of edge. She continues on, and the more Christians sought to prop up their faith with mere emotional intensity, the more it appeared to be an irrational belief that belonged in the upper story of the private experience. And unable to answer the great intellectual questions of the day, many conservative Christians turned their back on mainstream culture and developed a fortress mentality, and separatism was adopted as the positive strategy. And, and, you know, what began to happen then is you, you write songs like, you ask me how I know he lives? Well, he lives within my heart. <laughs> you can't say anything about that, right? There's the subjectivism. H how different is that kind of subjectivism from, well, I know my body looks like a man, but in my heart, I know I'm a woman. And then what are you going to say? What's the objective thing you're going to say when your own theology and, and understanding of scripture and what the gospel is is subjective feeling emotive oriented what are you going to say well you're going to retreat and that's what we do and that's how we argue our cases about freedom of religion just let me retreat and, and be holy over here in this little huddle while the rest of the world is is quickly moving more and more to saying there should be no holy huddles anymore because it's myths and it's fairy tales and it's irrational it's irrational to want to believe that. Who would want to believe that? And that's exactly what the Supreme Court said in Lawrence v. Texas back in 2003 when it said, why would any state have a sodomy law? That's irrational. There's not even a rational basis to try to distinguish between certain kinds of sexual acts and particularly when they take place in public settings. We have brought our situation on ourselves because we democratized the truth. We, we lost our sense of connection to history. Now, there's one last thing Nancy Piercy says, and I, I want to turn to this. One of the other things that changed, and, and look, I'm not saying everything prior to this second great awakening was right in the church. There was a cold, dead orthodoxy a lot of times. But the way you came into church membership was, was a considered process. It wasn't, oh, I had a conversion experience, I run to the front, and now I'm a member of the church. You, you, you were taught the catechisms, you, you were discipled, you were taught scripture, then you were asked questions and you were examined. And it was decided, do you really know what you're doing or is this just an emotional thing? Is this just to try to get rid of shame or guilt? And, and it's just, what did they call it last week? Worldly sorrow, not godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And, and look, you, you, can get, you can get real caught up here with saying you haven't shown enough repentance yet for us to let you in the church, and that, that happened, okay? So again, there's no one side of this that was perfect in all of this. But here's what began to happen. Nancy Pierce put it this way. 
this new populist, subjective, emotional, on-the-spot conversion concept led to, she says, a new individualistic, even atomistic view of the church. That was consistent with this new theology of emotive, subjective conversion experience. And she said, so consequently, the church was no longer, listen to this, this is interesting, an organic community where there's truly a body. I'm deciding if, if you're a part of this body because it's a real thing here. There was no longer an organic community into which one was received, and there certainly wasn't a spiritual authority to which one submitted. Now, we see that going on in the church all the time, don't we? We have trouble with submitting to authorities in the church. And I'm going to suggest to you that's because we've lost the concept of creation and authorities created by God that are tied to creation. And we look at everything subjectively. Can this person teach and speak and get people excited? Why, well, yeah, well, then they ought to be a preacher, right? Is this person good in business and knows how to make great financial decisions? Let's put him as an elder or a deacon, right? What began to happen is the church became, she said, a collection of equal, autonomous individuals coming together by choice. And she notes this quite correctly. In that concept, you hear the echoes of Thomas Hobbes and John Locke and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who, who regarded everything in our social structures as choice and contract. And the church ceased to be a body and an organism, but an assemblage of parts. We just all happen to congregate at the same time to worship, but we're worshiping individualistically, not so much organically and corporately. And there's the democratization of the church and the reduction of the high view of Scripture to even the most unlearned can know as much as the most learned and the most studied and we don't really need to have teachers, and we don't need to have creeds to help us ask questions and give us good answers. We don't need to know our history. You see, the Reformation brought about a change with respect to the Catholic Church, but it did not abandon the early ecumenical creeds of the Church about the nature of divinity and the um, creed of Chalcedon dealing with, with the two natures of Christ. It didn't abandon those things. It went back to Augustine and his views of things. And eventually the Catholic Church said, oh, we're going to reject Augustine because we don't like where the Reformation is going. But the Reformation was grounded a lot in the theology of Augustine who said, oh God, if you don't do a work in me, then I can't be saved. Command what you will, then give what you command. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you'll come to me and say, I can't do it, I will do it for you in the person of the work of Christ and the objective salvation that he has won for you and I will have it applied to you by, your, by the Holy Spirit according to the plan of the Father. There's that definition of Christianity that we used last week with Bobbick. The whole of who God is in his ontological oneness and in his division of persons is involved in creation and in recreation and it is a work of God and not of man. Now next week we're going to look at what helped bring about this change in the way we look at scripture. And what you're going to find is the church began to adopt 
a method being employed in science to the study of scripture at about the same time science was beginning to reject that very method and approach and it's going to tie us back into what we've talked about before with Roland Van Zant and the metaphysical foundations of America. I think you're going to find this really fascinating and I hope you'll join me again next week on God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.